Hey, everybody. It's Marielle. Do you ever wonder how technology is shaping our bodies? I mean, think about it. Some of us sit and look at a screen all day and then relax by lying down to look at another screen while simultaneously scrolling on an even smaller screen. It's got to be doing something to us, right? Our friends over at the TED Radio Hour have been digging into this with their series called Body Electric. We have an episode we thought LifeKit listeners would appreciate. It's about myopia, or nearsightedness, and how we might be able to take better care of our eyes. Here it is. Hi, it's Manoush. All right, and let's get you a line to read. Can you read down this line for me? And I want to introduce you to 12-year-old Harmony. E-S-T-L... I don't think I can see the last one. This is her getting her regular eye checkup at a clinic in Berkeley, California. O-P-L-O-T. And then I'm really pushing you here. How about this one? So Harmony has myopia. That means she's nearsighted. She and her mom, Ching Tai, can't quite remember exactly when she first got diagnosed. I was in first grade. I think I was... Second. Okay, second grade. How old was I? Second grade is... Six or seven, I think. So Harmony wore glasses for a while. Her parents also made her take very regular breaks from looking at a book or a screen, which Harmony hated. So she cried a lot. She had to use alarm clock every 20 minutes, and she needs to take a rest for five or ten minutes, and she just gets really upset. But her parents knew that they needed to deal with Harmony's nearsightedness because, as they learned, myopia, especially early-onset myopia, can cause dangerous vision problems later in life. When she was diagnosed with myopia, actually we didn't tell her. My husband and I both like went, went through a sleepless night because she was so little and we... We knew how bad it can get. It can can lead to a lot of um, complications, including loss of vision, if it gets bad enough. The World Health Organization warns that by 2030, 40% of the world's population will likely be nearsighted. And rates of myopia in kids are soaring around the world. In China, where they specifically track early-onset myopia, 80% of teens and young adults are now nearsighted. There's been a debate over why so many kids are going nearsighted earlier and earlier. Because bad eyesight used to just be chalked up to genetics. But now experts agree that something else is going on. What, though? Too much screen time? Too much time inside? Clearly, our habits are at odds with what it takes to maintain healthy vision. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is Episode 3 of NPR's Body Electric series, an investigation into the relationship between our technology and our bodies. This week, why our eyeballs are elongating, causing so many of us to go nearsighted, and what we can do about it especially for kids. So how has your vision been since the last time we saw you? I know it's been about three or so months. Mm, Pretty good. So Harmony doesn't need to wear glasses anymore. 
because for the last two and a half years, she's been wearing special lenses while she sleeps. And were you able to wear your contact lenses last night, Harmony? How many yes. hours would you say? Um, 10 hours. By gently reshaping her eyeballs back to the spherical shape they should be, these special lenses are correcting her eyesight. Do you ever forget to put your contacts in? No. And it seems like, so far, the treatment is working. My vision started getting better after, like, a week, which was pretty fast. So I think my vision went from pretty blurry, couldn't see distant objects, to really sharp. And color was clearer, especially in farther areas. So I can, like, actually see things without having to spend too much effort or having really thick glasses on my nose. Harmony and her mother say they have a woman named Maria Liu to thank. The majority of the patients we're seeing here on Saturday are myopia control patients. A decade ago, Maria founded the Myopia Control Clinic at Berkeley, the first of its kind in the U.S., where she began offering a wide variety of treatment options beyond just glasses. We're prescribing them treatments, not only just to correct their vision, but also to help slow down the progression of myopia. In a minute, how some of these treatments work, and why Maria's colleagues at UC Berkeley originally scoffed at her plan to offer them. Correct. Actually, it's worse than that. They didn't even believe a myopia control is a thing. And so I actually volunteered my um, Sunday time to get the clinic going. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads. Fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Defender. With the Defender family of vehicles built for the modern explorer, the Defender capability is legendary whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. From the reimagined exterior to the robust interior with innovative, award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This message comes from NPR sponsor Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. Global X specialize in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train. A high-performing business takes a high-performing building. Reach organizational goals while enhancing systems and reducing emissions with Train Energy Services. Explore their consultative approach at train.com slash energy services. Okay, 
we're back. So uh, my name is Maria Liu. I'm a professor at UC Berkeley School of Optometry. Dr. Maria Liu was born and raised in Beijing, and she has so much to say about what's happening to our eyesight. Her obsession, specifically with nearsightedness, started as a child. So I'm the only nearsighted person in my family. Um, I started noticing my distance vision um, is starting to be too blurry for um, anything on the blackboard, roughly when I was 9 or 10 years old. I started reading very early on, and I had experienced a very, very intense academic program. Wait, what kind of school did you go to? I went to an accelerated program. So I skipped uh, one year in primary school, one year in middle school, two years in high school. Holy moly. So you were studying all the time. Yes. Maria ended up going to medical school in Beijing, too, and specializing in ophthalmology, where she learned how our vision works. Yes, so our visual system, but more specifically for the eyeballs, they are extremely complicated. Uh, for one thing, our eyeballs go through a very precise, coordinated growth soon after birth. As soon as we're born, our eyeballs start growing faster than the rest of our body. And the retina, that section at the back of the eyeball that's sensitive to light, quickly matures so it can focus on images that are far away. The retina, just an aside here, I mean, it is amazing. It's what turns those images into electric signals that it sends to the brain to interpret. Anyway, at around four months old, our eyeballs finally grow into a healthy spherical shape that makes it possible for us to see images close up, too. But myopia causes our eyeballs to morph, to elongate. Instead of maintaining a relatively global or round shape, a spherical shape, it actually turns into a more sitting egg shape where the axial dimension is longer than the horizontal dimension. This elongated shape helps the eye do a great job focusing on things right in front of us. But it refracts light in a way that makes it harder to focus on things far away. So we become nearsighted. But why does this happen? For decades, optometry schools have taught that myopia is genetic. It gets passed down through your parents. But that didn't totally make sense to Maria. And so that certainly really interested me in understanding why I'm the only nearsighted person in my family. I have been told that nearsightedness is a pure genetic problem. It tends to run in the family, but this is certainly not the case for me. She wondered if it had to do with the long hours she'd spent studying, because a lot of her classmates had also ended up nearsighted. Then, around 1996, during her residency, she noticed that for some patients, a certain kind of contact lens slowed down their myopia. Yeah, they were wearing them just as an alternative to glasses or soft-contact lenses. And I happened to notice the progression is not nearly as fast in those patients. So Maria started using them on her younger patients. I started feeding uh, my patients a special type of lenses called orthokeratology. It's a type of a rigid contact lenses for overnight wear during overnight sleep. Oh, so it's just like wearing a retainer for your teeth at night. Exactly. 
but she still wanted to understand what triggers nearsightedness. So in 2000, she went to UC Berkeley to do some research. I was mostly working with uh, chicks and guinea pigs, as well as monkeys or even primate rhesus monkeys as close as to um, um, human visual system. And she found that what mammals, including us humans, do early in life can make us go nearsighted. It's not just in our genes. So there are multiple factors. Number one, early introduction of electronic devices. Number two, drastically reduced outdoor time. If we indulge our vision into a very closed-up world, spending too much time doing reading or using electronic devices, spending too little time outdoor, the visual system will think, okay, now the ideal endpoint is not to be able to see things clearly at far. I mean, it's kind of impressive, right, that our eyes have evolved over millions of years to grow to the right length. And yet, if we use them in certain ways, they will quickly, quickly adapt to what we're asking of them within the span of a couple years? Yeah, so this is a very interesting thing. Um, Millions of years ago, you know, animals or human beings rely on having clear vision either as a prey or as a predator. But nowadays, being able to work comfortably in front of a computer becomes advantageous vision-wise. So this is actually our visual system's adaptive response to the drastically changing lifestyle. When you say kids are getting, or you're seeing this in, in kids younger and younger, what are you talking about? We're talking about age four or five years old becoming myopic. Oh, wow. And it used to be? It used to be um, like early teens, hmm. but it's really not uncommon, especially in areas um, with a higher educational level to see kids becoming myopic in toddlers, but definitely kindergartners. Oh, those little eyeballs. They're elongating in ways they shouldn't be. Correct. So because the eyes are so plastic in um, like a younger age, a small stress, uh, visual stress, will cause a bigger change or a bigger axial elongation in younger children compared to older children of the same visual stress. So the earlier the age of onset, the harder it has to control and the later it stabilizes. Huh. So so what does that mean? What could the long-term consequences be if you develop nearsightedness earlier in life? So um, the longer the eyes become, the higher the risk of a complications such as retinal detachment, retinal tear. Huh. And myopia is also a very um, high-risk factor for glaucoma as well. So all of these are actually happening much earlier than any other um, priority eye disease defined by WHO. So certainly more and more um, parents and um, even industry partners are aware that myopia is a controllable condition. And by intervening as early as possible, we're able to actually change the course of the development of this condition and eventually reduce the risk of those bad complications that may eventually lead to irreversible vision loss. Maria was changing the way people thought about myopia, and she was determined to change the way it was treated at Berkeley. 
So in 2013, she opened a myopia control clinic. But her colleagues were super skeptical. Correct. Actually, it's worse than that. Um, they were not even interested. They didn't even believe a myopia control is a thing. And so I actually volunteered my um, Sunday time to get the clinic going. You worked for free? Yes, for multiple years. So 10 years ago, how did you get the word out? And who were your first patients? We actually didn't do any marketing or advertisement. Um, obviously, we in the Bay Area, we have a very high percentage of the Asian population. And myopia control has always been like a top priority for a lot of huh. um, Asian parents. So as soon as they heard about having a myopia control clinic, we started getting more than enough patients I can handle by myself. So the clinic um, at that moment realized the potential, and they started assigning me with residents and, uh, and interns. So um, as of February this year, our clinic has over 1,700 recurring patients uh, just for myopia control. So where are we now then in terms of uh, parents generally in the United States thinking about myopia, thinking about control, treatments? I think in general, comparing to 10 years ago, the disease awareness of a myopia is getting much, much better. But they are quite expensive. The annual cost to cover both the services as well as the material is around $2,000 per year. Wow. I mean, you came across these lenses over 20 years ago, but they're still pretty expensive, and I guess people still aren't that familiar with them. Yeah, so this is still considered a concierge service um, by many practitioners. Okay, this is going to sound like a strange question, uh, Maria, but... If there is an ophthalmologist fantasy, like, just, like, go crazy here. A baby is born, and you want them to have the highest chance of having healthy, rightly-sized eyeballs, shaped eyeballs, as they grow older. What would be the optimal lifestyle for that kid? So that they don't need you. Play with the real toys. Stay outdoor and just live like a normal kid instead of giving them the iPad, free up the mom's or dad's labor, and uh, started just take away those electronic devices um, from you know infants during their early visual development. They need to see the real toys, and they need to play with the real toys, they need to engage in the real outdoor life. I mean, my fantasy, I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. I'm now thinking when they're doing their homework that I need to, every half hour, go grab them and make them walk around the block in the sunlight, looking around to see if they can spot birds. Will that help them with their eyesight? Absolutely. So to count for a good visual break, there are several conditions um, we have to consider. Number one, it has to be the whole vision looking at far. So popping the, you know, the head outside of a window just looking at far may not be good enough. I oftentimes have parents telling me, oh, I have a huge living room. And even inside this living room, they're actually looking at far. 
But keep in mind, the ceiling, the wall, the furnitures, everything is still crowding the peripheral vision. This is still telling、huh. the eyes that you're sitting or you're, you know,、um, basically in a very、uh, up close environment. And so, get them a dog, wa- walk the dog, you know, like multiple times a day. Just you know, anything to push them outside and play outdoor. All right, so we're like, kid, you need to go sit in a field around four o'clock and scan the horizon for about five minutes. That's the ideal. Correct, and the break is actually most effective right after a sustained amount of near work. Oh, and、uh, another very very important point: parents are、um, their models. You can't ask your children to do better if you yourself, you know, spend the majority of your time. Um, like texting or surfing on the cell phone. So, um, um, we also need to tell parents to make sure you're setting up good examples.、Hmm. It just is fascinating to me how our habits can change our bodies. Absolutely. Um, we do see this, you know, really, really consistent trend of the whole, um, like a global children population becoming nearsighted. And I, I actually don't know if we have a solution to tackle this natural evolution or the body adapting to the changing lifestyle. But I'm hoping we have better、um, treatments available that can actually reduce、um, the the blinding effect of those complications. Just FYI, the Chinese government has been trying out various strategies to bring down myopia rates in kids, including encouraging them to get outside more. And they're starting to see results. One recent study reported that the rates of nearsightedness in 18-year-olds was down nearly four percent. When we come back, we'll hear from a work-from-home team that have been trying to get more movement into their workday. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car; you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is steady, pragmatic, responsible. You don't want your bank to be exciting. Exciting is for setting trends, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Inc. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams, so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. Atlassian. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
the day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Hello again. Okay, it's time to talk about our big project with Columbia Medical Center to try and get people off their screens and moving their bodies. We have had over 20,000 people sign up, which is amazing. And if you're part of the study, you'll be wrapping up your baseline data reporting soon and starting to incorporate those movement snacks into your life. And we wanted to give you a little preview of what the project might be like for you. A few months back, some folks at a startup called FIG agreed to give it a test run. They all work from home and were so psyched to do it together as a team. We asked them to record voice memos to document their progress. This is day two of the walking experiment. In the first few days, some, like Hans Weidler, felt pretty good. I definitely felt a lot better energy-wise and my mood was better. And just overall, (laughs) I was happier that I was going outside during the day and, like, moving more. But after a short honeymoon period, Hans said he started losing steam. I'm on my five-minute walk right now, and it's starting to annoy me a little bit to have to get up when I'm in a flow of being productive and trying to get something done. I would come back from a walk, and I feel like it takes me a few minutes to get my focus back up to where it was before. So overall, I really liked it, but I'm not sure that the 30 minutes will work for me long-term. Meanwhile, his colleague, Anurima Sharma, was recruiting her pals to join her. Hello! Today I got lots of friends on our five-minute walks. I think it's made us productive today. But she also started seeing a side effect. I found that on the first day when my focus was on the walking, I was like, oh, it's time for a break. What do I go do? And I went and I grabbed a snack and I ended up snacking 10 or 11 times the first day. So I did it, but I don't think the point of doing it was to just go eat a bunch of snacks. Today, I had to time my outdoor walks in between the rain. I did a lot of work at my standing desk and then every 25, 30 minutes doing some lunges, walking in place a little bit, um, a little swing side to side, a little dance party. So Others, like her colleague, Jake Lynch, had to get a little creative due to extenuating circumstances. I was traveling a lot this week, so I was on a plane doing work and I would like take breaks and go to the bathroom. Uh, but one time I purposely kind of got stuck behind the food cart for a little bit, so I had a little bit of a longer break. But I, I was like kind of nervous that I was like annoying the people by me, but I actually noticed the guy next to me got up and walked a bunch of the times too. That was pretty funny. I was like, oh, maybe maybe I'm encouraging other people to uh, to do a little more walking. That is pretty funny. I love that maybe this behavior is contagious. Whether you are signed up for the study or not, if you're trying to get more movement snacks into your life, we'd love to hear from you. Record a voice memo. Tell us how you're keeping yourself or your team going. We are at bodyelectric at npr.org. And thank you. Also, come say hi online. I'm at Manoush Z on Instagram. And we're at Ted Radio Hour on Facebook. Body Electric was produced by Katie Monteleone and edited by Sanaz Meshkinpour with production support from Rachel Faulkner-White. 
Special thanks this week to Kobe McDonald for his help with field production. Our original music was by David Herman. Our audio engineer was Valentina Rodriguez-Sanchez. Our fact checker was Chloe Weiner. Thanks also to Anya Grundman, Lauren Gonzalez, Lindsay McKenna, Yolanda Sangweni, Beth Donovan, Irene Noguchi, Julia Carney, and Fiona Guerin. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, and you've been listening to Body Electric from NPR. NPR.